Welcome to a very special episode of Always Be My Sisters. Just like those delightful clip shows the girls were known for, we've decided to celebrate the end of season one with a clip show of our own. For the next hour or so, Coco and I will be sharing our favorite moments from each episode and fun facts within fun facts before we kick off season two next week. So let's start with the conception of the show. It was about a year ago that I got the idea of having a Golden Girls podcast. And with everything going on in the pandemic and being unable to see my friends and working full time on a true crime show, Murder in the Rain, I thought doing a Golden Girls show would be a really nice distraction. And it has been. It's been way more fun than I even anticipated it being. How about you, Coco? I know You came into this with me kind of dragging you along as my producer, but we've talked about how the girls have kind of infiltrated our lives a little bit. It's been a real awakening (laughs) because, I yeah, I watched it when I was a child and and now rewatching it. It's just a completely different thing, but it's been a I can't I'm so excited. We have we have six more seasons to go. (laughs) Yeah, we're only one seventh of the way through. I just yeah, I'm already so attached to them. I'm. I'm sad that it has an end date, but I'm also looking forward to just getting to know them more and more and more. And yeah, yeah, it's been a it's been a heck of a ride. It's been like five months, right? Yeah, we launched in March. It's pretty cool. And here we are in August, and it flew by. Yeah, it really did. I, I couldn't believe that we've already done 25, right? Uh, yeah, 20. Yeah, this will be 26. I know for me, starting out, I was very nervous because with our other show, it's you, me, and our co-host. And for this one to be kind of just on me, I was very nervous and I can definitely hear it in those first couple episodes. I almost want to tell people to be like, you know, listen really casually to the first like three or four episodes. And I started to realize the process of going through and writing each episode, and you can see it in the runtime as well, that as the girls were figuring themselves out and as the show was figuring itself out, I realized I was doing the same. You know, we were laughing, looking at the clips and like our second episode was only 25 minutes long. (laughs) And it's like, oh, well, because there wasn't a ton of meat on the bones of the episodes. You know, they were still figuring out their writing style and everything. and, And I was doing the same thing. So it's been really fun to kind of follow in the same trajectory as them of like, oh, now I know exactly what I want the show to feel like. Writing is easier because I know the flow better. And it's been really fun to kind of ride that same ride with them. Yeah. It's like a a parallel, a parallel trajectory. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I mean, you know, as far as it's a new thing. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yes. No, we're not. Basically, we're the number one show in the world and we will be beloved for every year to come. (laughs) Well, let's get to it. Let's get to our clips. We're going to start with episode one, of course, the engagement. And I knew 
right away after watching that episode and writing, I was like, I have to find somebody that was married to a bigamist because it's just so juicy. And I was lucky enough to find Mary Turner Thompson, who wrote a book about being married to a bigamist. And she told the most fascinating story. So even though you can hear my nerves in my voice and maybe my writing isn't as strong, you got to listen to that first episode just for that interview. So we're going to listen to a couple clips from that episode. Hit it, Coco. Why that name? Well, not only is it the last line in the series, but it is the foundation to all that Golden Girls encompasses. That through all the highs and lows life brings, your chosen family will always be there. Before we hop into the show, I wanted to take just a moment to introduce myself. You may know me from my other podcast, Murder in the Rain, where I talk about true crime in the Pacific Northwest. And you may be wondering, how does one go from true crime to Golden Girls? While I love true crime and finding ways to bring attention to stories that need coverage, it's nice to escape to happy things now and again. And with me is Josh McCullough. Hello. And he is my Coco, (laughs) per se. As my personal houseboy, he helps direct, produce, and edit the show while adding to the stories. So thank you for being here. Thank you for being a friend and for being my Coco that I hope gets in the habit of cooking me delicious food while I'm working. And sound effects guru. Thank you. (laughs) Those are the the hot dishes I serve up. (laughs) Hot dishes of sound effects. You need a fart sound? Yeah, so you I'm can, your man. I feel like you can hear in my voice how serious I was taking this. Yes. I was so, I was like, it needs to be formally done. This is like a job interview that I'm presenting the Golden Girls. And now it's like, okay, here's what's up. <laughs> yeah, and I noticed too when I was compiling the clips for this, how infrequently I was speaking. And when I spoke, it was like two or three words. Yes. <laughs> I think the first thing I ever said was, yep. <laughs> Um, what uh, The next clip, do you want me to just go into that? Yeah, that let's with... go into the next one. This is with Mary Turner Thompson telling how she found out about her husband. So it's a little teaser for you if you haven't listened oh my God, to it she's yet. the greatest. She's, she's so, so awesome, so funny. We were supposed to go to the UK in, this fall for Crime Con, and that's obviously not happening now. But Thanks. man, I <laughs> thank somebody. Yeah, to people uh, who don't. I'm sorry, go ahead, start over. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you jerks. Let us go. Let us, Let us go places. I just want to go places. I was hoping we could have met Mary you Turner know what? Thompson. I don't just want to go places. I don't want anyone to die. And I don't want the jerk faces to be killing them. <laughs> so stop it. Should we take this again? No. All right. I love it. Next clip. <laughs> How was it you came to learn the truth about your husband? The very first chapter is his wife rang me. It is a complicated story, but basically she rang me and said, you know, are you Mary Tanner Thompson? And I said, yes. And she said, are you also Mrs. Jordan? And I said, yes. She said, I'm the other Mrs. Jordan. Uh, and then proceeded to tell me that, uh, yes, she was, she was married to my husband and had five children. And she'd been married to him 10 years longer than me. So. Uh... <laughs> she was such a hoot. You know, sometimes you gotta laugh. She was so funny that I was like, I need to re-listen to that interview because whatever I'm dealing with right now is nothing compared to what she did. And she laughs. She, I mean, she's literally laughing to the bank off of book deals and movie deals and all the stuff that she's got going on. Yeah. So she's handled that with a lot of grace. She's the best. Yeah, she's I so love cool. her. <laughs> she's just strong and awesome. So yeah. when we finally do get to the UK, we will be we will be looking her up. Then we got to episode two, Guess Who's Coming to the Wedding. This is when we first get to meet Stanley Zabornak. And one thing I love about the show is 
the plot whoopsies. And like I said, I'm part of that several Facebook groups, but there's one that's very active that at first I was like, these nerds over here. And now I'm on it every day and just checking in on people and wishing happy birthday. And and it's been a really great community to be a part of. And it's funny because every day someone posts, hey, did I just noticed in this episode this happened, but they said this in another episode, uh, you know, basically plot whoopsies. And it's always funny because there's at least one person that's like, can't you guys let the show be the show? And it's like, no. Even though the writers didn't expect this show to be loved and watched for so many years, because in the 80s, you know, it's just on TV. You're not going to rewatch it. You didn't have DVDs. You didn't have shows that you watched at home. So, of course, they didn't expect that. But there's something that I just get such a delight from. It's kind of like Easter eggs to me. You know, it's like if if you've been paying really close attention, there are so many layers that that's why you can keep enjoying it for so long. You can watch the show even from just a production standpoint. And I think that tells a story, too. Yeah. The makeup, the costuming, um, Estelle Getty getting some work done in later seasons, mm -hmm. things like that. Tell a behind the scenes story that's like just as interesting as as the things that they that they're able to, to conjure. And it's so funny that they all, you know. They work together so well, mm -hmm. but the, it seemed like there was a lot of people at odds with one another. Yeah, on a professional level. Yeah, but to, but on the stage, it all equals out, and they and they just play. I love that. And I think all of that is why it's so everlasting. You know, yeah. because you can just you can sit down, put on an episode, watch it, laugh, and that's that. But if you really want to be dedicated and get more from it, you know, it's like how we talk about Tarantino movies. You mm -hmm. know, you can just watch it and be entertained. Or you can totally pick it apart and just enjoy that much more of it. And so this was uh, a plot whoopsie, one of the first ones, I think, um, about the time that Dorothy and Stan had been divorced and how long ago they got married and all of that stuff. So the plot whoopsies are all out of love and there are special little Easter eggs. When Kate calls Stan and Dorothy has to speak to him, we get our first plot whoopsie of the episode. When on the phone to Stan, Dorothy states that they haven't spoken in two years and that they were married for 38 years, meaning 1985 would have been their 40th anniversary. However, in season three, episode 17, Uncle Angelo fakes being a priest and they have to fake still being married and they're reminded that it's their 40th anniversary. But according to this timeline, that would have made it their 43rd. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> we are here to expose the truth. It's so nerdy. It is. <laughs> Hearing your own voice just be like, um, actually. <laughs> uh, it wouldn't have happened in 1985, as a matter of fact. <laughs> this episode, we're going to talk ourselves out of doing the show. <laughs> we sound like idiots. This is awful. Know-it-alls. <laughs> Yeah, so that one uh, was a fine episode. That was a really short one because there just wasn't a lot to work with. Coco was gone. We met Stan. Dorothy was, I want to say comically over the top, but it wasn't even funny. It was kind of cringy, just so, so big with everything. Is that so. where she steals his 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 hair piece at the end? Yeah, at the okay. end. Yeah. yeah. It's good for that. I mean, there's, there's a lot true. of great stuff in there. Yeah. That's true. Then we got to Rose the Prude where we met Miles, but not Miles. The same actor was playing uh, Arnie. Arnie. Oh. Right? And uh, Rose was nervous about going to bed with him because that was how her dear Charlie died. And that was how my Grammy died. Does this happen on a cruise ship? Yes. That's weird. 
no pressure. We're only trapped at sea. <laughs> I know. Okay. That and it was that cruise ship, that room where it was like a lot of loose stuff. Lot of, so much furniture. A lot of things just waiting to roll around, and he's using the radio out at sea and yeah. all of that. It was just out Mul- of control Multiple nonsense. China cabinets. Yeah. <laughs> all right. My Fabergé egg collection. <laughs> Rose drops the second bomb by telling Arnie she might kill him if they have sex. That's because when Charlie had his heart attack, they were making whoopee. That isn't totally unheard of, but it is rare. Of the 4,500 people in Portland that died from heart attack in 2017, only 34 of them had had sex within an hour of the cardiac event. More upsetting was that only one-third of the partners that witnessed the heart attack attempted CPR. So get that training, people. You never know when you might bone someone to death. A fun fact about this one, this happened in my own family. My Grammy was 83 years old when she passed away in 2002 after a few days in the hospital with congestive heart failure. Eventually, Grampy pulled my mom aside to say he had been experiencing severe guilt surrounding her death as they had had sex the morning of her heart failure. So there you have it, folks. As much as I don't want to think about my 80-year-old grandparents going to town, I can't help but to think it had something to do with Grampy living to be 99. So good for you. Your grandparents are nasty. <laughs> They're little freaks. <laughs> I love hearing that. I'm. It's very encouraging to think that that is a possibility. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. They sound like pretty awesome people. Yeah, I think they just did their own thing. You know, yeah, they had a gaggle of kids, but whatever. We're hitting the sack. So. Very much in love all the way yeah. to the end. Married at, gosh, 19 and 20 or something. My, what, It's a cute story of... I think my Grammy was supposed to go out with somebody else or my grandpa's brother, somebody. And then he showed up and he's like, oh, no, I'm marrying you. And then like two weeks later, they're like, oh, yeah, we're getting married. Oh, and that episode had our first interview with Dr. Gail Saltz, who we have uh, a few times throughout the season. And that was a delight, too. I've really enjoyed getting to have people on that for me, besides getting to share the pop culture and all of that stuff, because I make the show for me of what would I be interested in listening to? And it's like pop-up video. I want to know all the background details. I want to know the, who the actors were and, and all of that stuff. But outside of that, it's why does this show matter and what do they touch on that's important and how can we make it matter still? And so that's why it's been so cool to be able to talk to people that, Maybe, you know, if enough people hear this, it makes a difference. So I was really delighted for episode four, The Transplant, to speak with Leslie Brock from Donate Life Northwest to talk about misunderstandings about kidney donation and misconceptions and what people can do. So um, that to me was really important to not just talk about the fun stuff, but also what does it mean today? When it comes to kidney donation specifically, I looked into it. I've been interested in perhaps doing living donation. And I was really surprised to see you can live just fine with one kidney, that the healing process is surprisingly fast, that some places offer, if for some reason you need a kidney at a later time that kind of get prioritized on the list, things like that. Are there other things along those lines, kind of the pros and cons, if you will, of living kidney donation? Living kidney donors, it's funny. People say that living kidney donors are some of the healthiest people on the planet. 
Because in order to be a living kidney donor, you have to go through very rigorous testing. Um, they ask you so many questions, both about your health history and psychologically, are you ready to do this? Um, they, they go through all sorts of testing to make sure that you're as healthy as possible to donate a kidney. Um, everybody's born with two kidneys. You only need one, or at least most people are born with two kidneys. You only need one. Uh, so we encourage everyone to consider being a living kidney donor because, uh, right now in the United States, there are over 100,000 people who are waiting for a life-saving organ transplant. And 80% of those people are waiting for a kidney. And there's only so many deceased donors out there. And so the best way for us to reduce that waiting list and waiting list times is to encourage more people to explore living kidney donation. I have a friend with three kidneys. I have a friend with three kidneys. Really? Yeah. Hmm. They're not the same person. I, I mean, it can't be. Mine is from California. Oh. Who's, your, who's yours? Jen. Mine is also a Jen. <gasps> I have a, a friend named... Every gen listening, go to the doctor and get checked and see if you have three mm -hmm. kidneys. <laughs> oh, another fun fact. Uh, kidney beans are named after the kidney. Yeah, the shape. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is that it? And then we had the triangle. <laughs> Episode five. Roll that beautiful kidney bean footage. All right. I don't even know what this clip is. This is all staying in. Mm -hmm. Dorothy is still seeking validation from the girls when Blanche is able to sneak in a backhanded compliment about not needing to worry about looking good as Elliot obviously likes her. And you really had some thoughts on that shirt. She comes out in a collared, stiff shirt, but kind of flowy at the same I time. I would say something that like a casino dealer would wear yes. in 1985 yeah. or a, uh, mm, I would say like a local drug kingpin. <laughs> You know, a lower, not quite Scarface. Yes, like Jupiter, Florida level <laughs> drug kingpin. Yeah, it has. Yeah. It had the casino <laughs> uniform is a perfect explanation because it had a black base mm -hmm. with big, colorful marks on it. Yeah, I've never felt. There's a few outfits Dorothy rocks, but I never felt like they dressed her for her. Well, that was the '80s. Curves were not allowed, so the fact that she was bigger, it was like, then we'll make you a fridge. No curves. Yeah. Blanche's comment about Dorothy's shirt leads for her needing to change, and Rose joins her in an effort to help. Blanche hears the door and, barely looking up from her book, glides over in a delightful green and purple frock, the kind that has the train starting at the shoulders on the back. Ooh, I really want it. Anyway, it's Elliot at the door, and Blanche explains that Dorothy will be out in just a minute. But before sitting, she offers him a drink from their rarely shown and usually only out at parties living room bar. He takes her up on the offer and says he would like something smooth and sweet with a little kick to it. Blanche offers him a slow gin fizz, which was a popular drink in the 80s. Slows are actually a berry found in England that is often used in things like beverages and jams. Oh, who could that be at the door? Hi, it's me, Chris Styler, diehard Golden Girls fan and author of the Golden Girls Cookbook. Let's pop into 6151 Richmond and see what the girls are eating and drinking today. Come on. Looking for something smooth and sweet with a little kick to it? I'm talking about the drink, not the bartender. How about a slow gin fizz, an old school cocktail and a favorite of Dr. Elliot Clayton? But if you're gonna do it, do it right. First, do not put your hands around Blanche's allegedly tiny waist lest you end up being the one who gets manhandled. 
Second, spend a few bucks on good slow gin, made with real gin, not neutral spirits like less expensive brands. Good slow gin will set you back about 25 to 35 bucks. There's no need to go up to the 80 to 90 dollar brands unless the kinder, gentler government starts sending you a crazy amount of social security checks. Heyman's and Whitaker's are two brands to look for. For two slow gin fizzes, plunk enough ice cubes into a cocktail shaker to fill it. Add a half a cup slow gin and a quarter cup of lemon juice. You can use a little less lemon juice if, like Dorothy, you're tart enough already. Shake it up nice. And pour the mix, cubes and all, into two rock glasses. Add club soda to taste. That's where the fizz comes in. For added drama, pour the club soda from a little bit of a height, like Tom Cruise did in Cocktail. Peeling yourself off the ceiling is optional. Cheers. That was the wonderful Christopher Styler, who is the author of The Golden Girls Cookbook. So we were delighted to have him on to give us a little recipe of what a slow gin fizz was. Then we were on to episode six on Golden Girls, and we were lucky enough to talk to Jennifer Engler of the York College of Pennsylvania to talk about child abuse, which... Again, is a bummer topic, but it was important to have that conversation because the ladies were having that conversation. While we haven't heard about this avant, that means before, Dorothy is taking a French class and has a final coming up. Yet another aspect that makes the show so inspiring. Some of the ladies have jobs, some are retired, and through the years, they all volunteer, take classes to further their own education, and do fundraisers. They're always living and improving their lives for their own sake, not to please a man or meet societal expectations. That's rad. Isn't it though? It's just the best. I was just when you were reading when you were saying that I was thinking like how great it is that like the the best their lives were was when they were all like their forces combined mm-hmm. in the same home. It's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's not oh we're old now so we can sit and I'll just knit and yeah. wait to die. They it's like all, yeah. no, now I have free time and yeah. I can kind of live a real housewives life but you know for good. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Watching porno and eating stuff in the middle of the night. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Please. I can't wait to be 80. From these lips to God's ears. <laughs> <laughs> Rose reminds Blanche that they are in Florida. There's plenty for them to do with a 14-year-old. Amusement parks, natural sites, Rambo. Rose starts to get rosy talking about the movie while Sophia, the porno lover herself, hops in to share that she has seen it twice already and that Sly Stallone's sweat-to-clothing ratio is ideal, which is funny to hear Sophia say as her role on Golden Girls would put her in the running to play Sly's mother in the 1992 film Stop or My Mom Will Shoot. It wasn't exactly a beloved film, but it did earn $70 million at the box office. It wasn't even beloved by the star. When asked about the movies Sylvester Stallone wishes weren't in his catalog, the first one he said was stop or my mom will shoot. With all the crap he's made through the years, the first one you say is the one where you got to work with Estelle Getty? How dare he? A shameful comment. (laughs) Wow. From there, we were on to episode seven, The Competition, all about that big bowling game. Another iconic episode. So, So great. So funny. Just... I, I love it when characters in sitcoms 
get really like worked petty. up. Or, they oh get yeah, very petty about something that's inconsequential. Yeah, it's really it's like very that. real. Yes, <laughs> you know, of course you have that friend, me. That's come on, we gotta win this. And here's that clip. Dorothy pushes as to what the special occasion is because the last time Sophia made her special sauce, it was when her cousin that looked like Tony Bennett, the crooner that isn't exactly the most handsome, especially when you're using him to describe a woman, was married off. But Sophia acts nonchalant. Rose joins them in the kitchen and thinks, disrespectfully, that the sauce she's smelling is that of Chef Boyardee, which by that time was a cheap cupboard staple. While the brand name was a literal punchline in the 80s, it was in 1924 when Italian immigrant Chef Boyardi left his head chef position at the Plaza Hotel. That's right, the Plaza in New York, to open his own Italian restaurant in Cleveland, Ohio. Everyone loved his spaghetti sauce so much, he sold it in his restaurant by packaging it in milk bottles. A few years later, he focused solely on the sauce and moved to Pennsylvania to grow his ingredients and package them. After being used in World War II for military meals, the end of the war meant the end of his company. Selling for $6 million in 1946, he continues to be the face of the brand to this day. I have no shame in having had a love for the chef when I was growing up and still really wish they would make a Beyond Meat ravioli. It's not like it's really real meat in the ravioli anyway. It's more of a meat butter. That's a great description of Chef Boyardee meat. Thank you. All of them. The hot dogs, the meatballs, <laughs> the ravioli. I never ventured outside of the beefaroni mm-hmm. and the ravioli. The hot dogs scared me too much. Yeah, that was my, the hot dogs were my jam when I was a kid. <laughs> All the way. A Totino's party pizza is not a pizza. Right. And sh- and SpaghettiOs are not pasta. Right. But they are. But they're delicious. They're their own weird thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Important stuff. <laughs> Valuable conversations. So mm, we are listening. <laughs> We're listening to these clips live. <laughs> mm. Mm. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. And we're... We're just hearing places we could have improved or slightly inane meat butter. All right. What do you want to set up episode six? Eight, I I mean. I do. (laughs) Episode eight was the break in. Another classic episode. And we were able to speak with Amy from Simply Safe to kind of quell our nerves about things we can do to make sure we protect ourselves and uh, here's a clip from episode eight. <laughs> I thought that maybe a young Bradley Pitt watched Sophia in in these episodes or this episode where she's eating all the time and thought, that's, that's going to be look. my thing. Yeah. He's like, throughout my career, I will only be chewing. <laughs> I mean, and not the scenery. Really, if you if if someone did the math of amount of screen time Sophia is on and amount of eating she does. It would be in Brad Pitt numbers. I mean, even in these first eight episodes, I want to say at least half of them she is eating. She's Well, she's a snacker. She's a big snacker. Which is very much a grandparent thing. Yeah. Once you're in your 80s, no big meals. Just little pieces little of cheese. And huge I'm- potato chips. We never learned the fate of the robbers. Had they been creating a crime wave in the neighborhood? Were they part of a major ring or just some troublemaking kids? What we do know is everyone responds differently to crisis. Flight, fight, freeze, or fawn. 
You have no idea how you'll respond until you are in the situation. And for the most part, you can't help how you respond. As we saw in today's episode, when a traumatic event happens, it's not important to manage how other people are affected by it. What matters is meeting them where they are and supporting them. Dorothy doesn't say Rose was stupid for being scared. She was worried for her because of her fear and actions. Rose isn't any more weak than Sophia just because she doesn't make jokes about a serious situation. It's that when the shiz goes down, you know your friends have your back and will do what it takes to make sure you're taking care of yourself to get back to the healthy version of yourself, not the fixed version. Very astute. Oh. I love your writing. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. I appreciate it. I've I... always loved it and it's just getting more and uh, it's just getting more better. <laughs> Well, if you can tell, it's getting more better. God, well, never mind. <laughs> You're great. But I won't, Thank you. I can't express it. <laughs> Blanche and the Younger Man. For episode nine, I got to speak to my dear friend, Kelly Niles Yoakum. She is a doctor of badassery. And uh, not only does she work in age and education about growing old and, and everything surrounding that, she is f- very fond of dating younger men. So it was a it was a twofold there and it was so fun to get to talk to her. A, yeah, a great interview and an incredibly pleasant voice. Oh, I know. Please I wish enjoy. she was my professor. And it's it's really uh if you think about what a cougar or a panther are, they're predators, right? So I I love that episode because it debunks a lot of a lot of that. There are a lot of myths and stereotypes that run amok uh, when we're talking about this particular topic. Um, And I like to debunk them as often as I can. Well, what are some of those things that you either saw in the episode or you see in real life that you think need to be debunked? Because I do love that about the cougar. I saw your post last week about that of, this is such BS that, of course, women doing the same thing, they get this, not only a name to it, but not really a villainous name, but yeah, predatory name. Yeah, exactly. Well, some of the the myths, let's just start with aging and sex, right? So well, I'm turning 54 and I have never felt younger or more alive than I do right now. And in my classroom, sadly, I spend a lot of time just talking about the fact that older people have sex, <laughs> right? Which is shocking. Yes, your grandparents are having sex, um, people over the age of 30 still have sex and, and women in particular want to be desired and still have all of those longings and interests. So that's the big one is we still have sex. <laughs> so once you get past all of that, as a gerontologist, uh, you know, age is kind of my thing and later life is, is, is kind of my thing. And so the age thing is important only in that um, it's a social construct that helps us categorize things. And that's it. You know, when I'm out with my girlfriends or I am going out on a date with a younger guy, we don't really talk about his age that much, right? We want to know all the normal things. You know, does he have a job? Does he deliver pizza? Which is totally fine. But, you know, the only thing that uh, I think gets in the way um, are how we feel about ourselves um, and how open we are to kind of ripping, ripping apart, ripping the bandaid off um, our ideas about age and later life and sex, and in particular women, women and sex. 
She's so cool. Hope we get to have her back on for something else. I know, and I, I trust me, you guys. I hate how Zoom calls sound. Also, though it sounds pretty good. I mean, if you have to listen to a Zoom call, listen to one that's been worked on by producer editor extraordinary Coco. That's right. Other than that, I'm sorry, and I can't wait to get back to doing actual interviews in person. That'd be really cool. Yeah, those Zooms sound like crap. (laughs) Sorry about that. But Kelly sounded amazing, and she made amazing points. And I know I left that conversation being like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, very empowering to hear someone talk about that, not just specifically that aspect, but just about Mm -hmm. your life. Yeah. Live your life, man. As we've discussed, sometimes the show would touch on heavier topics, and we like to be real about it. So sometimes we touch on those heavy subjects as well. And one of the episodes that got a little dark, maybe, was episode 10, The Heart Attack. And we had some frank discussions about what we expect for the end of our lives and what we what we want our uh, post-life plans to be. You sure did, Frank. I guess I should be more specific about my end-of-life plans in case something happens and people have to decide what to do. So natural burial, there you go. It's settled. Yeah, some sort of natural burial. And maybe I can feed a tree For or me as well. yeah. some worms. I don't know. Blanche, of course, wants nothing but the most for when she dies. A parade, a riderless horse, which is a distinction saved only for those in the Army or Marines that received the status of colonel or higher. This honor also goes to the president, hence why she's probably fond of it, as there was a riderless horse at John F. Kennedy's funeral, since the president is the highest-ranking military officer. That pesky not being a public official is also why she won't be laid in state, which is when the body of a deceased public official, and sometimes figure, is laid to rest so people can view it. We're pretty sick, huh? She's also going to get a no from Arlington National Cemetery in Virginia. While Blanche wishes to be buried there, she won't be. It's reserved for those who die in combat, military veterans, and some families of those veterans. You can't just go because you want to lie around with a bunch of men in uniform. You know who could have been buried at Arlington National Cemetery? B. Arthur. Enlisting at 21 years old in 1943, Bernice Frankel, B's pre-fame name, became one of the very first members of the Women's Reserve. During her time in the military, she drove military trucks and was a typist. She was stationed at the Marine and Navy Air Stations in Virginia and North Carolina. She was even promoted from corporal to sergeant, then staff sergeant. I never understand military rankings, but those, especially for a woman in the 40s, are a big deal. She was honorably discharged in September of 1945 and got married to fellow Marine Robert Arthur, but divorced only three years later. Luckily, she kept the Arthur. It should come as no surprise that during interviews with higher-ups during her stint with the military, notes were made in her file that sound a lot like notes I've received from work. She was, quote, argumentative, and her attitude and manner was, over-aggressive. She was also officious, but probably a good worker if she gets her way. I relate to that on a very deep level. It's true. My face gets me in trouble all the time. With me, even. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) And usually it comes from me, from just a state of confusion. (laughs) I am generating it, but I'm getting some help. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the heart attack episode, and then we were on to Stan's return. So we get to have another Stan episode, and this one is much less sitcom-y. 
It's more about the relationship that's potentially being rekindled between Stan and Dorothy. <laughs> I think this is the episode. I don't know if the clip is in there, but it was where we dubbed the term swamp property, which I love. And I use that all the time because I have swamp property in my possession and I want it gone. <laughs> it's in the garage right now. and So I really hope there are people out there that have adopted swamp property as the things left behind by your exes. Yeah, Randy, come get your stuff. <laughs> clip time. When Dorothy's ex-husband comes to town on business, well, one thing leads to another. And before Dorothy knows it, she's inundated with flowers and words of love. But just how sincere is Stan? Has he actually changed his cheating ways? Do the ladies really need that much mustard? All of that and more in today's episode, Stan's Return. Hmm, a nice little fade out. What's next on this clip? At 11 years B. Arthur's junior, Herb Edelman is actually the youngster in real life. And like B, Herb grew up in Brooklyn, New York. He wanted to become a veterinarian, but like B, he went into the military doing radio work with the Army. Herb had an extensive television and film career before passing away from emphysema in 1996 at only 62 years old and only four years after Golden Girls ended. With films under his belt like The Flint, The Odd Couple, and The Way We Were, it was no wonder he went on to have a successful television career, including gigs on The Flying Nun, Bewitched, Mission Impossible, The Partridge Family, Happy Days, Chips, Charlie's Angels, Matlock, La Law, and Maud, where he first worked with B. His role on Golden Girls earned him back-to-back -back Emmy nominations and would give him a few episodes on Golden Palace, the spin-off series. I really enjoy all the guest stars they have and not even guest stars, but other actors and extras because so often it's someone that you go, oh my gosh, I had either no idea they were on it or I was younger and I didn't really realize who they were or they went on to do that. Da, 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 da. That's been really fun for me, just diving into IMDb constantly. And that brings us to episode 12, The Custody Battle, where we got to have a little conversation with my senior correspondent, my mom, my ma, Shelly Holland. And we got to discuss uh, the roles again, like we did with Stan, with Gloria. Gloria's played in this episode, bum, 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 by Doris Bellick who, while she had roles in shows and films like One Life to Live, Tootsie, Family Ties, Batteries Not Included, and What About Bob, most people know her as trial judge Margaret Berry on Law and Order. Real fun fact here, she also did voiceover work. She did over 50 episodes of the Nickelodeon cartoon classic Doug, and her last role before she passed in 2011 was as Mrs. McReary for the 2008 video game Grand Theft Auto 4. That is pretty badass. There's another clip coming up. <laughs> Prepare your ears. Hi, it's me, your mom, Shelley Holland. Oh, hi, mom. So in this episode, Gloria and Dorothy are sisters and they're getting some time together and kind of a theme throughout the episode is all the girls talking about finding out or assuming they were favorites. You had four siblings, mm -hmm. huge age differences, mm -hmm. and you were the baby. Mm -hmm. Surprise. I really was a favorite though. <laughs> <laughs> That's no, what I'm talking there's, about. There's no doubt in my mind or anyone else's. What was it that... 
It was like, duh, I'm the favorite. Besides you having the best personality of all of them. Oh, I thank you so much. <laughs> the dynamics were so different because of the age difference. So we were kind of in different households because financially, everything about it, age-wise for my parents, was a totally different household for my oldest sibling to what I lived. Because uh, how many years difference was that? 15. New fan favorite, hopefully future <laughs> fan favorite, Shelly. That's right. Permanent senior correspondent. Now we're on to episode 13 with my very favorite scene. Dorothy continues attempting to introduce him to Blanche before Rose comes in from the kitchen. There's a twinkle in her eye as she greets Jonathan and approaches him with open arms. Jonathan compliments Rose, but before they can go any further, Blanche hops in with a, oh, wait a minute. Everything that happens now is perfection. Dorothy's hands are stressfully wrung. The four of them are standing between the couch and coffee table, so it feels like a play, but also like they're kind of trapped in the cringiness of it all. Blanche puts that jumpsuit to work by having her hands on her hips before making her way past Dorothy to be in between her and Rose. She claims she's figured it all out. That Rose is mad that Blanche invited her new beau over without asking, and as some sort of hire someone with a physical disability prank, she had whomever this man is come in Jonathan's place. Everything about that is so wrong, which is why it is so great. She couldn't have said more wrong or oh boy things, and she's just kind of stuck in it. As Blanche keeps unraveling the mystery, she begins to unravel. She gives Rose a fake punch-pinch to the shoulder before letting out the most uncomfortable, high-pitched giggle that, as Dorothy starts to say her name, Blanche, and she's looking at Rose's lipless face, she realizes she is very wrong and this is in fact Rose's date and she has now made him out to be some sort of freak for hire. Dorothy hangs her head in her hand. Rose sternly stares her down. Jonathan has a look of, is she for real? Blanche starts to panic as she has no one to turn to. Facing the audience as the horror of her mistake washes across her face, her giggle crescendos into my favorite moment. Say it with me now. God, I wish I was dead. Yes, that moment is my all-time favorite. And I so much appreciate that you also appreciated it from the jumpsuit to the jokes to everything. It's an incredible episode. Jonathan Newman is one of my favorite characters. And I have a dream of having a Simpsons style poster of all of the Golden Girls characters. That'd be so great. And he's definitely prominently featured. Someone because, needs to do that. Yeah. Maybe that's our ultimate goal. Yeah. I'll reach out to some of the artists that were on Golden Goodies, which I would still love to do. I just kind of ran out. So people need to reach out to me if you make anything Golden Girls related. Uh, but yeah, a poster of everybody would be so cool. Yeah. Episode 14, That Was No Lady. I chose this clip for selfish reasons because I personally think it's like the most romantic thing I've ever heard. And it was directed at me. So yeah, I'm going to share it again. I hope I said it. <laughs> Coco. Hello. Have you ever been struck by lightning, the love at first sight kind or real kind? Only in my dreams. Oh, yeah, that's never sweet. in uh, never in real life. Have you had lust at first sight where you're like, I need like, you know, that because that's what I I don't think love at first sight is a thing, but you see someone and it's like you're drawn, not just an attraction level, but like drawn to them, you know? You. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. That's true. 
That's really sweet. You're welcome. Oh, mm. like eight years ago? Yeah. I mean, oh. I was just instantly, when you first opened your mouth and you first showed up, I was just like, wow. Oh. And I still wow. Oh, my God. We'll be right back after this commercial break. <laughs> but no real lightning? No real lightning. I've never, <laughs> I've never, no. Have you ever come close? Are you scared of lightning? So. Tell no. me everything about your thoughts of lightning. I love, I love the sound of uh, thunder and lightning. Yeah. I love storms. I'm not afraid of them. I would not go outside because I feel like it, I would be hit by lightning for sure. Right? Yeah. You're nodding your head. I know that you agree. I yeah. would definitely, between the two of us, I would get hit by lightning. <laughs> so lucky to have me. Uh, yeah. And I love that the show can allow for such <laughs> tangents, but they're still in the realm of what's actually being discussed. It stirs up so many emotions. Almost every episode yeah. brings something out. Yeah. Blanche is powerful when she tells Rose, hey, life sucks. And like one of my favorite Janis Joplin songs, you got to get it while you can. Rose counters back. That kind of selfish, unfaithful behavior is what broke up famous pairs like Debbie and Eddie. Debbie Reynolds, a name you might recognize as a potential future roommate and star of one of my favorite movies, What's the Matter with Helen, was married to Eddie Fisher, a famous singer, and they were the parents to Mrs. Princess Leia herself, Carrie Fisher. Eddie cheated on his wife, Debbie, with her best friend, Elizabeth Taylor. That pair, Eddie and Liz, were married after Elizabeth Taylor's boyfriend died in a plane crash, but she soon left Eddie Fisher because she was having an affair with her co-star in Cleopatra, Richard Burton. Richard, or Dick, as part of Dick and Liz, was on and off with Elizabeth Taylor for years. Their toxic, drunken mess of a relationship led to them twice marrying and divorcing each other. When it comes to Martin and Lewis, that was Dean Martin of the Rat Pack, and that's Amore fame, and he was one half of the beloved and mega-famous comedy duo Martin and Lewis, Jerry Lewis of Cinderfella and Telethon fame making up the other half. They were an odd pairing that somehow worked, leading to their own radio show, television show, and movies. That was until Dean wanted to do some solo stuff again, leading Jerry to be bitter and them just not ever talking again. Wow, brave men. I bet they would get along really well with Glenn. Finally, Rowan and Martin, a.k.a. Dan Rowan and Dick Martin, a comedy duo that got started in nightclubs but became most famous for their far-out show, Laughing. You know the one where Goldie Hawn has a sunflower painted on her tummy while she does the pony to psychedelic music and then doors on the walls open up to reveal celebrities and actors on the show giving cheesy one-liner jokes? That one. They broke up after the show ended, and they went their separate ways. I'm not sure if those two qualify as comparisons, Rose, but that's okay. Sock it to me, sock it to me, sock it to me. Sock it to yourself. Sock it to me? I love that clip because it shows what we're talking about with the episode, what's being referenced and giving fun facts or, like, the background to it, and then you throw in your awesome clip work. Boom, boom, boom. And it's free. <laughs> and we're leaving behind that was no lady to go to episode 15 a bed of roses where yet again she has loved someone to death and because of that storyline i learned from coco about matthew mcconaughey's dad i wonder if she'll say something like i asked him if he'd had enough big boy before he fell back and i realized something was wrong oh wait that was Matthew McConaughey's mother. 
Coco, you introduced me to this story while I was writing yesterday, and it's horrific. Yeah, I didn't remember the exact details, but I knew that that Matthew McConaughey's dad had died during sex and that his mom had said some very weird things about it, really weird boundary stuff for a a person to say to the public. Or their own children. To their own children. <laughs> And the dad had said for years, and Matthew McConaughey shared this, that for years my dad said, I'm going to go making love to your mother. And then he did. Cool, dad. Yeah. Thanks like, for telling me could that. Could you not dad. talk to me about that? And you, why, why did you tell me that more than once? Also, I have to worry about you guys having sex and like, no, thank you. But now I have to be like, oh, gosh, I hope they aren't for that reason. And then they were like, he called his shot. He knew. Yeehaw. Yeah. And then, yeah, the mom, she was on a, a a talk show or was being interviewed for something. And she's like, oh, yeah, I asked him if he'd had enough, big boy. And then he fell backwards and something was wrong. It's like there are limits to the information. We don't need all that. All right, all right, all right. Oh, what a nugget of information that was. <laughs> I'm glad to know that. I feel like it might come in handy somewhere. Ew, you said come in handy. It's a family show. <laughs> All right, let's get away from that very quickly to episode 16, The Truth Will Out, where we meet Rose's horrible daughter and dislike her basically through the whole thing. We've got two clips here. Rose takes the opportunity to start sharing real information about Charlie and how he would have loved his granddaughter when Sophia, or in this case, we'll call her Ellen because she is bursting in. Ellen Burstyn. She's an actress. This is an inside joke. You're welcome to steal it anytime someone bursts into a room. It's my favorite joke and it always works. <laughs> Thank you. We're once again treated to Sophia and Dorothy sharing a bed. At least this time, they're in Dorothy's bigger bed. The room is dark, but we can see Dorothy is tossing, turning, and beating the life out of her pillow. Standing up to show off her white cotton, long-sleeved, high-collared nightgown is Sophia, who can barely handle all of the movement, comparing it to one of my favorite roller coasters in the world, which is at Disneyland and Disney World theme parks, Space Mountain. But the nail in the coffin are Dorothy's size 9 feet that are freezing and pushed up on Sophia's butt, and she refers to them as fudgicles. Not fudgesicles, fudgicles. I'm assuming it's the same thing. I really think that's the only correct way to say it. <laughs> From now on. It always has been. I would like a box of fudgicles. Wait, you you say fudgicles? Oh, it's incorrect, but it's the only proper oh. <laughs> way. <laughs> it's the fun way. Yeah. Can I? It's kind of in kind of the same way she tightens everything, you know, mental and yeah. physical. Yeah, she and doesn't like, have time for fudge sickle. Yeah, fudge sick. No, obviously fudgical. it's a fudgicle. Fudgicle. Continuing to meet family members, we got to, no, continuing to meet family members, we were introduced to Blanche's niece, who didn't fall far from the family tree of sluttiness. Sophia can't relate to being close to a niece, because all of hers are nuns, and nuns are just too hard to shop for. In the same moment, Ellen, I mean Dorothy, comes bursting in from the kitchen. Hi! <laughs> I'm Ellen Burston. She's clearly distraught, saying over and over again, I can't believe it, with a hand to her head. 
Hey, this is Coco coming at you. Hi, from Coco. A, from across the room. As you were telling that, I had the thought that her name, maybe they gave her the name Lucy because she's <gasps> a loose woman. She's a Lucy. I am almost certain that that's probably how they came up with that name. I bet they sat there and they're like, what's kind of a slutty name? Lucy. Lucy Goosey. Lucy like a goosey. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately for Dorothy, Rose has been in the kitchen witnessing the miracle of Dorothy's animal talking powers. And I can't help but giggle every time as Dorothy gets busted, she starts to merrily dance with the broom across the kitchen while asking how long Rose had been there. As Rose celebrates Dorothy's talent, she continues to deny anything. That is, before Dorothy threatens to kill Rose if she squeals on her. But Rose has the upper hand. Kill me? You couldn't even kill a mouse. Rose is looking lovely in her aqua-colored dress while Blanche looks like a Georgia peach in her outfit that has too much going on to even start to dissect. Sophia gifts Lucy with a parting plate of snacks that are loose on the plate except for a dangerously thin layer of saran wrap, which is supposed to hold it in place to survive a plane ride, as Lucy looks like an American dream in her red, white, and blue sweater-shirt combo. While we only got a few minutes of Sophia this episode, they are all wonderful. Like when Dorothy, saying her goodbye to Lucy, says, We enjoyed having you. Sophia adding, So did half of Miami. You know, because she had someone sexually. Rose sits down, feeling shocked and impressed at Lucy's turnaround and behavior. Blanche shares that when they were talking in Ed's room, she told Lucy she had a lot going on and deserved to be loved for more than just putting out. She also realized that she was a lot more of an influence on her niece than she had previously thought. Besides, it's not like she gets around as much as she says she does. It's a Southern thing to be a bit vague about the truth. So no, Blanche hasn't slept with as many men as she implies. Or has she? Wink, wink. I do wish I had a better vocabulary about clothing. <laughs> I wish I, I maybe I should do like an online fashion school or something because the reason I do that, first off, it's for inclusivity so that someone listening that maybe has also listened to the show or has vision impairments that they can't see the clothing, then they get an idea of what everybody's wearing. And the, I think that really paints the picture in a in a much more interesting way than describing the set would be. There's yeah, something about I their think, costumes that m- makes you kind of imagine the way they're moving as they're doing and things. And they're memorable, too. Yes. So if I, you know, again, for me, if I were listening to a show and they were describing a scene, I could picture it. But to have the clothes, it's like, oh, yeah. And then she's over here and that Blanche's dress is kind of flowy and. Dorothy's outfit is distractingly riddler looking, you know, so so if anyone has suggestions for a better vocabulary about clothing, I would happily take that. (laughs) That brings us to episode 18, The Operation. After their practice has concluded, Sophia and a special guest enter the frame. Sophia from the kitchen door and the boom mic from the top right corner. Snarky Sophia grumpily makes the joke, I won't dance, don't ask me. Originally written for the 1934 musical The Three Sisters, I Won't Dance was almost lost to the flopping of said musical. But then, a year later, some lyrics were rewritten and the song was added to the musical film Roberta, starring Fred Astaire. With that star power behind it, the song became an instant standard and has been covered by Lady Gaga and Tony Bennett, Willie Nelson and Diana Krall, Ella Fitzgerald, Johnny Mathis, and of course, Old Blue Eyes himself, Frank Sinatra. 
back at the house, we're in Blanche's boudoir, where she is once again trying to perfume herself to death. The implications of what is going on in this scene. I mean, really look at this. She is at home. It's the night before her best friend's surgery, and she's sitting alone in her room, looking at a mirror and spraying herself with perfume before going to bed. This is some real narcissistic, perhaps even psychotic behavior. Blanche's back door is rarely used. The one in her bedroom, that is. Hey-oh. Spicy. Uh-huh. Spicy. Oh my God. <laughs> That's why it's so odd to see her curtains somewhat open, revealing that Dorothy is trying to sneak into the house. And you pointed out, Coco, that it's almost like it's at a corner. Like there are two doors almost. It looks like they're, yeah, there are like cornered. Or at least Sliding windows. glass doors or something, yeah. Oh, maybe it's, maybe the other one is one of those windows that you see that Dexter has in Dexter. Oh, It goes yeah. from the ceiling and then like kind of goes down and there's like little slats. Oh, so maybe. So maybe this, there's, there's downtown, downtown slats. <laughs> but also it's like, so then her room, even though it's next to the hallway and the bathroom, but part of her room is out further from the house so she can have this corner and this I, um, weird patio space for Dorothy to walk on. I defer to you on that. I, I do not understand the No one uh, understands the house. the house yet. It's like a vortex house. Coco and I were just laughing at the length of that drum roll. <laughs> That's good stuff. I completely forgot about that. Now we're taking off to episode 19, Second Motherhood, where Blanche is dating the very wealthy Richard and he has children. But, you know, does she want to be a mom again? More importantly, the other ladies are working on their mansion-sized bathroom. One bit I always love in the show is when Rose, unexpectedly and very out of character, is suddenly super smart about something. For example, as she looks over the estimate line by line, she responds to Dorothy's, he must think we're stupid, with a, yeah, really stupid. How could he possibly think we would need three dozen spud gaskets? Her intelligence, when it appears, is always jarring. In this case, she's actually right. A spud gasket is the little rubber stopper thingy at the bottom of the toilet tank. From what I read, it appears the toilet only needs one, but she's saying only a dozen. Either way, she is right. He was trying to rip them off. I regret ever defending you, plumber man. Continuing the gasket and bib conversation into the kitchen where Sophia is cooking, Rose explains that on the farm back in St. Olaf, she had to help with all the plumbing, even though they didn't get it until she was 18 years old. While that sounds outrageous, that would have been somewhere in the 1940s, so it's not totally unheard of. Even to this day, there are 2 million Americans without indoor plumbing. This is due to lack of infrastructure, mostly in clustered areas. And the state with the highest population without plumbing is actually New York. Sadly, of course, it isn't all about infrastructure. With whites and those with higher income statuses, the percentage without plumbing is only 0.3%, but for Black and Latinx, it's 0.5%. And with the Navajo Nation facing the greatest plumbing issue and water scarcity, Native Americans are at a 5.8%. If you'd like to help those that are working to provide clean running water to the Navajo Nation, please visit NavajoWaterProject.org. I know I talk about bathrooms a lot, but as someone who grew up in a single bathroom home and currently lives in one, I can't help but have toilet envy from time to time. This bathroom makes their bedrooms look modest. 
First of all, we have multicolored blue tiles laid out in a checkered pattern. There's a huge window of which only part is frosted, so enjoy the from the shoulders up show, neighbors. We have a shower that has an overhead rain style shower head before I even knew they existed. The whole thing is no joke. Probably, what do you think, Coco? Like 10 by 12, if not bigger? Maybe bigger. It's enormous. It's comically. And it's funny because it's, it's rich person bathroom, huge, but not rich person bathroom decor. It seemed very dangerous. Was that tile around the shower? Yes. It seemed like you would just die. I mean, they're all older too. Yes. Not a not a mat to be found. Playing with their lives. Yeah, the floor too. Not, not just the shower, but yeah, the, the floor and the... Oh my God. <laughs> Someone call the police. No one, yeah, please. No one walk around in socks. Hard shoes only. Sneakers only in the bathroom. And, and get some water shoes to wear when you get out of the shower. Lord. <laughs> Coco, always looking out for everyone's well-being. I really feel that for anyone who showers, you should have some sort of protection in there. I told you how I fell when I was little. No. Oh, did you? Yeah, my aunt had um, old school 80s style like slidey doors on the shower. Oh, no. And it had the rail at the bottom and I went to get in and I was just tall enough to step in, but like not tall enough to land. And I, my foot slipped and... Clam slam. It was. It went right right up in there hmm. very aggressively. So get those mats, get those water socks, and get ready for adult education, episode 20. Dorothy, queen of reason, takes the reins from Rose and reminds Blanche that school is not meant to be easy, and she's going to have to work hard, maybe even talk to her teacher. But Blanche is too embarrassed to do anything like that. To make her feel better, Dorothy shares that she used to feel the same way when she was a child. Back then, she had a speech impediment, which kept her from wanting to speak out. What kind of speech impediment? Well, from her follow-up comment, we can only assume she had a lisp that led to her struggling to say her R's. Barbara Walters is one of the most iconic television personalities of all time. Part of what makes her so iconic is her lisp. Her way of speaking has been fodder for Saturday Night Live and basically any show in the 80s and 90s. While she was provided a speech therapist when she started to work at NBC, she actually started to feel more self-conscious about her speaking, so she stopped working on it and she started to embrace it. If she had changed her voice into a flawless news anchor delivery, I don't know that people would still be caring about her nearly 70 years after the start of her newswoman career. Who wants to say Barbara Walters when you can say Baba Wawa? <laughs> I think um, I'm coming down with the flu. With a stern, raspy southern drawl, Blanche reaches down to the end of the couch where a cord is hanging down. Picking it up, she asks... Well, if this isn't it, I'd like to know what other electrical appliance you're using under that blanket. What a scandalous joke this is. Even as a kid, I wasn't sure exactly what I was laughing at, but I knew it felt naughty. Invented in the Victorian era, 1869 to be exact, the first vibrators came along. Because the doctors that were treating, aka manually stimulating women out of hysteria, well, their hands were getting tired. So very openly and only for medical purposes, the vibrator was created. The first ones had generators the size of refrigerators. So I'm guessing they maybe didn't hit the spot out of the gate. 
Before the 1920s, the vibrator was not even viewed as a sexual tool. That's because there wasn't penetration and it was being used as a medical treatment. So what changed in the 20s? Porn. A vibrator was used in an early pornographic film, forcing the public to stop pretending the vibrator was as publicly appropriate as a walker and redefined it as a sexual tool, therefore making it taboo and not to be discussed. By the 1970s, the vibrator was back and actually marketed as a sex toy. And get this, at that time, only 1% of the female population had ever used one. Another fun fact, when invented, the vibrator was only the fifth home appliance to have electricity, beating out <laughs> the vacuum and iron. It wasn't until the infamous Sex in the City Sharper Image episode that vibrators became really mainstream again and options became more available. In the 80s, though, it was the Hitachi Magic Wand, Samantha's weapon of choice, that was most widely used at the time. I'm sorry to have talked about vibrators for so long, but it was all really fascinating. It's in this scene we learn that Blanche made the vibrator jokes of the 80s so Samantha could reignite a passion for them in the 90s. The long and the short of it, yes, Blanche is implying that the cord she is holding is for her magic wand. God bless her. All right, episode 22, job hunting. This one, the biggest thing we talked about was the look of it. This is the episode that was... Um, aired out of order from filming. So the makeup's bad and the hair's bad and everything's bad. Oh, yeah. This but, is one of the first ones they shot. Yeah. But they released it out of order Almost because it was the end. so bad. So well, we, we get the great sex talk at the table, but oh yeah, that's kind of it for this episode. Sorry, guys. Before we even get to the lullaby Blanche is singing while doing veggie chopping at the stove, we need to talk about the look of this episode. Even if you aren't a super fan, if you're watching the show in order, this episode stands out like a sore thumb. It's not that it's bad or anything. It was just filmed totally different than anything we've seen since the pilot. And that's because of sex. When starting the show, producers filmed several episodes. They continued to film so they would have a plethora of episodes to choose from. It's one of the reasons there isn't a ton of carryover storylines from episode to episode. Job hunting was actually one of the first episodes filmed. But once there were other, better episodes, producers decided to release those first. They also wanted to hold the episode back because of the frank discussions about sex. If they had released it as only the second episode, it could have been too controversial and it could have led to cancellation. But in waiting and letting everyone get to know the girls, the conversation at the table is still scandalous, but after falling in love with them, everyone is much more comfortable with it. Because this was filmed early on, many choices were made that changed with time. For example, the lighting and the temperature, as in from the warmer yellows and browns to cooler greens and blues. And let's not forget everyone's hair, especially Sophia's. Yikes. Blanche is wearing less makeup. It's all just off, but not off full, just different. And it gives us so many opening credit shots. Okay, back to Blanche's singing. As she is chopping veggies for her salad on the stove instead of at the Islander table, Blanche is singing a happy little song. But in this case, we're kicking off the episode with an oh boy. The song she's singing is called Kentucky Babe, and it was written in 1896 by Richard Henry Buck and Adam Giebel. How is an old lullaby an oh boy? 
Well, it was written by two white guys, or at least they got the credit for it, and it is considered a plantation lullaby, with words like bobolink, which is a black songbird, and lyrics like, lay your kinky woolly head on your mammy's breast, and phrasing like, skeeters am a hummin'. It's pretty clear that Blanche, whose family had a plantation, should maybe put this one on the shelf. Oh, Blanche, you and your inappropriate songs. She can't help it. She's Southern. It's just what she knows. Mm. Oh, man, we're in the home stretch. We've only got three episodes left. And we come up on Blind Ambitions, episode 23, where I was lucky enough to have a conversation with Swatha Natakumar from the American Council for the Blind, which was an absolute delight. And here we go with a couple little snippets from that episode. Once again, the writers have used exposition perfectly, dropping us into a situation, trusting our ability to figure out what is going on, instead of wasting time with proper introductions or a backstory as to who Lily is. Rose and Lily just start talking about the camping trips they took as children, and right away we figure it out. Lily is Rose's sister. How sweet, two flower names. And how coincidental, two lilies in the house. But Water Lily is busy in the kitchen with the lemonade. That's an inside joke. You'll get it later. As I watched the episode, I couldn't help but wonder. Sure, flower names are common, but was the duo of Lily and Rose an inspiration for Charlotte Goldenblatt's little girls on Sex and the City? Was it all in honor of the golden girls that came before them? Before we find out more about who Lily is, let's find out more about who Lily is. Lily is being played by theater and television star Polly Holiday. Polly had a few small roles in the 70s before landing the role of Flo on the television series Alice. I'll tell you why I kiss my grits! <laughs> Sassy, gum-smacking Flo was so loved, she even got her own spin-off series, which sadly only lasted one season, ending in 1980. But don't fret for Flo. Polly went on to have roles in Gremlins, was a series regular on Home Improvement. She was also in The Parent Trap with Lindsay Lohan, Mrs. Doubtfire, and Stick It. I understand that she was a recognizable face for the time, but Polly's Alabama-born accent always seemed a little too strong for me for her to be portraying someone from St. Olaf. Realism there are people that we can do things for ourselves that we can um like I remember um like I remember people like would would ask the person next to me like what what does or what does she need or what what does she want or like mm. help her. So like in recognizing that we are people and we can respond to ourselves, we can um that even though we are blind and BI, we can still um we're still people and we're still like needed in places and we still um can't participate fully to extent to other people's extent. So yeah, yeah. I just like realizing that we are people and that we um need to be represent representative in, in media and in um our society as people people are blind and prepared. She was so delightful to talk to and I loved at the end, you know, because it's I I get nervous with those kind of conversations because I'm bringing up something that I'm presenting from this positive space, this episode. And my nerves were, what if this, what if I'm not realizing 
how offensive this is or what if it's such poor representation and I'm celebrating it and it's actually super offensive to someone, um, especially someone that like is the PR person for the Council for the Blind. And so to hear from her that like it was funny, it was super accurate um, as far as like the the emotional side, which we discussed, just that like really powerful yeah. emotional conversation. I, think, I remember that the only part she had a problem with it was very funny. Yeah. When she found out that that the actress uh, was not actually yeah. Impaired. When, when she asked me, and she's like, "Well, was the actress actually blind?" And I go, "No." She goes, "Oh, that's, that's a problem." problem. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I hope there are there other episodes that you know of that you kind of want to talk to her about. Like, yes, there, there will be one more that I'll be able oh, to yeah. to reach out to her again. Yeah, I'd love to have her on again. she, yeah. was, she was great. Really great. Um, there's one more clip. Ooh. Do we know what it is? Let's find out. Together, listeners. Lily gets the last laugh of the episode, though. You think this is impressive. Wait until you see my driving. Though I didn't find this episode to be the funniest, and I thought Rose's characterization was kind of off a lot. Mm-hmm. I thought that Lily, the performance of Lily's character, was really beautiful and really heartbreaking and uh, very honest performance and I'd never seen her uh that actor perform uh that kind of role before. The makers of the Golden Girls had the confidence mm. to do that plot in a sitcom and have it be real heavy. And yeah. that's really impressive. And it doesn't come off as a very special episode. At first I was going to make that joke when we first started watching it today. Was that that's what it, that's what I thought it was going to be because mm-hmm. I knew what it was what the premise was and the, and then the way that she was like you know touching the glasses and stuff like that it seemed like oh we're gonna like learn a special lesson but it didn't feel that way at all it just felt like uh, a person coming to terms with their their life like their health things and it, and it connected to me because I have uh, a mobility issue mm-hmm. and we have a friend that is starting it seems to experience some sort of he- some level of hearing loss. Mm-hmm. And those things are just starting to pile up on us. That's just the way it is. That's just life gets harder. And like, that's something that all of us are going to have to deal with at some point. So I I really appreciate the show for doing that. It's amazing that it's connecting to me, a person who was a baby when this was out, you know? Right. And well, it just, you know, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. It's just, it's, just, it's just wonderful. Go ahead. I, I think that that's, you worded that beautifully as always, but I think that that's part of why the show has the love it has all these years later because those shows that did the sitcom thing and they did the very special and they made everything a big deal those are dated and those are uninteresting this is portrayed in such a real way and you laugh you want to cry you want to feel awkward and uncomfortable, you know, how would you handle it if your friend's sister was blind and almost caught your kitchen on fire? Yeah. You would be frustrated, but you'd want to be kind, but you, so. Yeah. The show recon- seems to recognize that life, life is a, is a very special episode. There oh, it's always happening. No, it, there's no, thank you. There's no pause button, you know, wise words from a wise man. <laughs> mm. It's true. And you do word that in such a lovely way and a heartfelt way. And it really is, you know, you made a joke a little bit ago. We've been watching the show Dave. We finally got into it and it's so hilarious. Much more extreme and vulgar than Golden Girls. So don't just hop into it. <laughs> but it it kind of hits the same notes of reality that in one minute you might be cracking up and the next minute 
real life happens and there's mental health, physical health, family issues, money issues, something, and you have to deal with it. And the best way to get through it is with a positive attitude and with your friends by your side and laughing through it. And that's why it keeps working because, you know, like we talk about the other sitcoms that would do that, it always felt like such a different tone from the show. It was like, oh, this feels sad or this doesn't feel like these people. And Golden Girls, it never strays from that. It's how do, how does Blanche handle this situation? Not let's put Blanche in this situation. We just have it happen. Or I, 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 I didn't expect anything from that show. I, it was, it seemed Dave like to be not my style in any mm-hmm. fashion. And then watching it, I'm, I'm having revelations about my own mental health. I'm having mm-hmm. revelations about my life and about creativity and relationships and, and believing in yourself yeah, and, yeah yeah and like and striving for for you know going you know heading toward your goal it sort of feels kind of new to have those topics in a show but i think maybe there was just a time where they didn't do that the 90s probably well it is because if you look at golden girls and you go wow i cannot believe that a woman in her 50s made a vibrator joke holy cow and then we're watching dave and we go whoa, I can't believe a 20-something-year-old black man is crying and talking about his mental health issues and medication. You know, so it's yeah. kind of that next, it, it just shows the progress. Definitely. Of if people hadn't pushed those limits back then, we wouldn't get people pushing it now so that we can have these conversations. So yeah, in the 80s, it was let's talk about AIDS because no one else is. And now it's let's talk about mental health because no one is. So it's kind of cool to see the correlation of things that are so completely different. Yeah. It's not what you expect when you go to watch something like that. Right. And it's so great that it gives that to you and also delivers on all the all the greatness of, uh, I mean, just the humor of everything. It's like candy-coated medicine. Yeah. You don't realize you need to talk about this stuff, so we'll make a lot of great jokes and we'll make characters that you love, so it'll be a lot easier to digest. Yeah. Oh, what, what episode are we on, Large Father? Papa Grande. <laughs> We're on to Big Daddy. May I, may I, oh, hey, hey, Alicia, it's Coco. Hi, Coco. May I try out an alternative to Big Daddy? Oh, okay, a different name. Large Father. <laughs> Is that what you wish to go by for this episode instead of Coco? I can't hear you. Large Father? Yes. <laughs> Don't even get Sophia started on his tone of voice. So she does the only thing she can. She curses him by pointing her index and pinky fingers at him like a devil horn hand. With credit originally given to Ronnie James Dio of the metal band Dio, it was in 1979 he first used the devil horn hand signal when he took over for Ozzy Osbourne as the lead singer of Black Sabbath. This gesture solidified him as rock royalty. However, he always credited his grandmother, who was Italian, who would use the gesture towards him as a protector from evil spirits. So the creation goes to his grandmother and all Italian grandmothers, it sounds like. But the use in heavy metal actually goes to Jinx Dawson of the band Coven. She and her bandmates used the same hand gesture on their album from 1969. That's right. Rock on, ladies. That's a cool song. That's I'd never heard of it before. 
Coven rules. Coven rules. I'm he so sees go- the rejection as a learning. Excuse me, Alicia. My Alicia was trying to speak. <laughs> go ahead. That is something that I really love with this. It's not just the pop culture references and being like, here's the info or here's who that person was. But I happened to literally like two weeks before we not even before we recorded that episode was watching a very a fine show <laughs> called Music's Greatest Mysteries, I think. And that's a pretty goofball show. It's a goofball show, but the information's really great. So it's like yes, you, you ignore the goofballness to get the info. And watching that about Jinx Daw, I was like, all this time it was a chick. Yeah. And they had metal going like in the late sixties. Come on. Why was I in the dark about this? I mean, I know I'm not like a metalhead or anything, but I've never heard her name or Coven. So yeah. it feels really cool, even if a couple people listening are like, whoa, who? And they find this band, that's rad. Yeah. Because she deserves to be known as the originator of that. Also, Sorry, that, is, Dio. that is one of the coolest names I've ever heard in my life. Jinx Dawson. Oh, yeah. Lead singer of Coven. Forget about How it. How dare they cross a witch? For real. Performative or not. <laughs> what are you thinking? Dio, dance with the devil. Well. You know. I don't know. You're going to hell. <laughs> Dio, is that you? I know there's one more clip with this, but I don't know what it is, and it's really long. He sees the rejection as a learning experience, as a place for him to grow. Nearly shaking sense into her daddy, Blanche points out that it wasn't what he's saying. It was that he was terrible. Her unnecessary comment gets a surprising response. He knows. He never said he was amazing. He knows he needs work. Blanche sees his self-expression as being like a clown, but Big Daddy clarifies. He met Blanche's mother before he explored the world or explored his own creativity and expression. He wanted to start a life with her and thought they would raise a family and then the two of them could set out to see the world together. He knows his singing isn't the same as being on a tramp steamer or a boat adventure, but it's his. He lost his wife before they could achieve the dreams they shared. He didn't want to get to the end of his life having feelings of regret or being unfulfilled. And singing is something he's always wanted to do. So now's the time. He's happy. She should be happy for him, supporting even his most wild of dreams. There's so much beauty in this moment. Maybe it's because I'm waiting for the results of a COVID test after potential exposure, even though there were vaccinations involved all around. Or perhaps it's that it's Murray, the actor playing Big Daddy, died so soon after this. But the way he talks about living life and letting go of regret and forgiving those that weren't there for you while still marching to your own drum, it's so powerful and inspiring. It's really how I wish to live my life. Blanche finally realizes where her daddy is coming from. Hugging it out, she begins to sing his song into his ear as her way of showing she understands and now supports his dream. It ain't gonna worry me for long. It ain't gonna worry me for long. I'll get up in the morning and I'll still be singing my song. (laughs) (laughs) The lyrics to that song have been stuck. That little clip has been stuck in my head since... We recorded the episode and I think about it like every morning when I get up and it really brings up my mood. Really? Yeah. When I think about it, like, uh, you know, it's not going to worry me for long. I'll get up in the morning and I'll still be singing my song. 
I feel that way. Well, it's very validating. Yeah. It allows space for whatever is worrying you to exist, but also to remember that it's not forever. Yeah. It's not the end of the world. It is really beautiful. And that definitely was maybe for me the most poignant episode. For me as well. Of just, you know, we are professional. I mean, barely (laughs) professional creative people. And it gets scary and it gets heavy and it gets lonely. It feels pointless sometimes. Yeah. And like you have to root yourself on and it is only made harder by not having the people support you. You don't need that, but it definitely helps to have people be like, I believe in you. That's going to work. It's going to be amazing. Or I've seen what you've created and it is amazing. And so to see that happening because any, I'm sure anyone who's done anything creative or as a hobby or anything outside of the box, whatever box you live in, and you have those people, the naysayers or the ignorers or um, the people that just don't understand it. And it can feel like they're right. I should just sit at that nine to five or mm-hmm. I, that is too big of a risk. And it's like, that's on them, you know? Yeah, that's their fear speaking. Yeah. Always. So it really, it really, yeah, you definitely, it's funny watching it when I was a kid or even you know, years ago before doing the show or just growing up and you are kind of like, oh, you're kooky old man. He's just deciding to, you know, do this and watching it now. I'm definitely on the big daddy side of things. And just like, I remember when I was 19 and I told my parents, yeah, I don't want to go to school. I want to do music. And I didn't even know what that meant. You know, I had, it was this huge idea of somehow, some way. And I had, you know, I I actually reached out to a friend of mine who's a country artist and we've worked together in the past and was hoping to talk to him about just that process and, you know, just how scary all of that is. And that song really is. So I do, I get emotional every time I hear it. I've just, me too. It it is. It's, it's, it'll be okay. You know, I'm, I'm, it's not going to worry me that long. I'm just going to keep going. And more so because the song became a duet at the end. Yeah. It's like that. It's even more power for him to go forward. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a wonderful lesson. (laughs) It's beautiful. (laughs) Well, before we get too emotional and wrapped up, we do have to find out how the girls all came together to be roommates and, you know, our extended family. And they do that in a clever and fun way in their very first clip show, even though it's not a clip show. It's a flashback show, I guess it would be. And that was episode 25, the season finale for season one, The Way We Met. Hmm. That reminds me of the way that we listen to this clip right now. It's moving day and Dorothy is rocking my favorite look for her. Casual Sunday afternoon 80s dad. Jeans and a yellow sweatshirt. Dragging her items into the house, Rose comes through the back hallway wearing a spring explosion of a dress covered in pink and blue flowers and is cheerfully celebrating the weather and her mood. Her attitude of gratitude isn't contagious, though. As introductions commence, Dorothy assumes Rose must be Mrs. Rogers. This is in reference to Mr. Rogers, the host of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, which was a children's television show that you have definitely heard of, so I'm going to move on. He, too, was all sunshine and rainbows, the same vibe Rose is giving as she places flowers in a vase. Rose doesn't get the joke as she starts to list off all the Mrs. Rogers she's known in life, a co-worker, a neighbor. Then, of course, there's Dale Evans, the most famous of Mrs. Rogers. 
Dale Evans was a singer, songwriter, and actress that famously wed the country star Roy Rogers. During the heydays of Hollywood, Roy Rogers was one of the top money earners and top performers in Western movies and country music. When they got together, it was the third marriage for Roy and fourth for Dale, but it worked. They sang together, starred in movies together, and even had a TV show together. When one of their children died from complications from Down syndrome, she became an advocate for changing how people viewed those with disabilities. Her most famous song might be the theme song that she and her beloved husband sang together on their show. And happy trails to season one of Golden Girls and season one of Always Be My Sisters. Coco, do you have any parting words with everyone as we wrap up our reminiscing through our first season and get ready for season two? It's been a heck of a ride, <laughs> and I can't wait to keep on riding these new horses. I've got a funky dunk. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> I'm going to go back to that analogy. I, it's been a heck of a ride. It's been a heck of a ride. Come with us on the road to season two. Powerful that was stupid. Stuff. <laughs> that was good. That no. was really no. wow, wow. I'm gonna be thinking about that one for a while. Hmm. I love doing this show. I love working on it. I cannot wait to see what happens in season two, and I can't wait for people to interact with us more. And I can't wait to go to. Hopefully, the Golden Girls cruise in January. Book it. <laughs> thank you to anyone who listens. I can't believe. They love you. You're loved. Oh, God. Thank you. Well, thank you for saying that. And thank you to whoever has said that to you. Um, yeah, I love it. It's my favorite thing in the world to do. It's fun to make little noise jokes all the time. <laughs> <laughs> girls, 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 boys and non-binary friends. Having you as listeners and supporters for the last 26 weeks has been so wonderful. I am so appreciative to everyone that has taken time to talk to us for interviews, for everyone that has listened and shared the show and left reviews. So thank you all, and we cannot wait for all the fun that is to be had in season two. There are so many great episodes coming up. And like Coco said, fingers crossed, we'll be able to meet some of you on the Golden Girls Cruise in January. So until next week's season premiere, stay safe, stay healthy, stay masked. Thank you for listening, and thank you for being a friend. Is that your elbow? There's my shoulder. Oof. We should maybe take that over. That's a little <laughs> topical. A little too topical for... It's funny. You're so heated, though. Well, I hate it. I just want freedom. I want to love you on the outside. Instead of only on the inside. That's right. Of the house. <laughs> I should have put in some Italian music here. Hindsight, baby. Mm. Well, you could do it on this one. Is that Italian? What is that? Is that the grapes? That's like La Cucaracha. That's like that. Oh, that was sombrero La Cucaracha. Dance. Oh, let me think. <laughs> Can you pull that clip separately to be a blooper? Yep. <laughs> I should. <laughs> I should put Italian music. <laughs> <laughs>
Olay. Grazie. Speaking of living your life, sometimes the show touches on heavy things, as we've discussed. And We're watching too much Dave. The lengthiest careers. Yes. So many credits to their name. It's yeah. pretty cool. I guess maybe that's why they hired him. They were like, this guy's been in Oh, yeah. Everything. We've known him around since yeah. like TV Since he was on The began. Rifleman. Yeah. <laughs> that's a very old TV show. The one in her bedroom, that is. Hey-oh. <laughs> it's so long. Spicy. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, didn't, I forgot about that. That's why it's so awesome to see her somewhat open, revealing that Dorothy is the, of the house. And you... Any final words? I do have final words. They don't involve a fart, though. If I'm in the room and they do... Always Be My Sisters is written, hosted, and created by Alicia Holland. Produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Always Be My Sisters is a Cascade Media production. You'll always be my sister.